1: Uh, multitasking here. Uh, it's Randy Mysterioso here for March, what did I say, the 6th? Oh, it's at the 8th already of uh, 2009. And since, uh, we were rudely and mysteriously cut off in our recording last time with uh, Ray Stanford, we've uh, asked him to come back and he has graciously consented to do so. So, uh, Ray's with us. Um, Ray has been in the UFO subject as a as an interested party, a researcher, a um, and a, co- a commentator and personality since uh, probably.
2: Uh,
1: well, you know what? Ray can tell us the exact date. Is that enough of a biography, or do you want to add a little bit more? I, I didn't even say anything about the paleontology yet.
3: Okay. Oh, well, I've I, I've been in it since. Um into UFOs since 19, well, I I became interested at age 9 in 1947, but I became active, very active, beginning in, let's see, 1954 when we started an organization at Carpus Christi and and actually there was a kind of a flap going on. We had some rather remarkable and exciting observations and uh, I decided after a while it was necessary to, to go into the instrument study of ufos and not rely on tales told in the night
2: uh in the end i
3: went through some interesting experiences of dealing with uh, the uh the late uh alleged contactee who was actually a hoaxer george Damsky and uh dan fry and some others uh but um all that just made me more and more determined that we needed to use uh, instruments of science. Uh, recording magnetometers, recording gravimeters, spectrographic cameras, uh, high-resolution movie and still cameras, uh, high-resolution audio uh, recording equipment, and uh, things like that, uh, including radar in our project uh, when when it was back in Texas. And so we've had some some wonderful results, and I've had some incredible adventures that I'm sure that a lot of your listeners would would really enjoy uh, hearing about. Which uh, well we got some cut off last time, but uh, uh, I could you know go back into those or into some other uh, well, just weird and bizarre things that that have happened that uh, that they might find an interesting addition to the the mystery of UFOs.
2: Yeah, well th-
1: that would be great. Um, you said you had a Men in Black story and some other things where we got cut off last time, which we can get to, was right at the beginning of the uh, AUM. Material. No, I'm sorry, it was Project Starlight. Uh, you were. Oh. We had just finished talking about Socorro and AUM, and you were starting to talk about Project Starlight. Okay. Um, if we well, you want to go chronologically, you uh, can do Starlight, that, too. Uh,
3: actually, I started it in 1964 when I was in Phoenix, inspired by... Uh, uh, my investigation of the Zakoro case, which occurred on Friday, April 24th, 1964. Uh, the experience that you mentioned, uh, of the man in black uh, goes way back before those days, uh, way back to 1957. And, uh, if you like, you know, I can, I can tell what happened. It was certainly the, the best witnessed man in black case in, in history of that. I'm, I'm confident. And it was also, a um, a, a rather scary, a rather frightening one, and uh, a rather dangerous one.
1: What was the background for this? What what, what precipitated somebody or something or whatever um, taking an interest in your activities?
3: Okay. Uh, we had uh, openly started a UFO organization in, in Carpus Christi, Texas, which is right down on the Texas Gulf Coast. And uh, <clears throat> there had been a lot of publicity, radio, television, newspapers about it. And uh, if one goes back into the old files of – uh, uh in a, when uh Jagger Hoover was with the FBI, the FBI files, and, and also to the Air Force files, you see that the government had become quite uh, concerned about people being involved with UFOs. And and in certain quarters back in those paranoid Cold War days, they were concerned that this might be some avenue of t- attempting to to preach communism to people. There are things that, that – uh, uh, a little later, uh, George Adamski was saying about his fictional space brothers and sisters uh, that uh, the conservatives, of course, took to be outright communist propaganda. And so they were watching uh, people that were involved in this, even as they were watching us. And uh, it just happened that uh, shortly before this, uh, we had decided, uh, my twin brother and I, and uh, several people from Carpus Christi, uh, John McCoy, and others had decided that we were going to go down to uh, Peru and uh, uh what we didn't know is that uh attending our meetings in corpus christi uh was a, a couple uh, uh, uh Mr and Mrs. Tom who were now deceased uh but they were uh they were i don't know for sure whether they were FBI agents or merely FBI informants well, we know they were informants, but whether they were actually agents or not we do not know. But uh, we know that uh, when uh, we told in our public meetings that we were going to be going to uh, Peru, um, they uh, reported this to the FBI and said this was highly suspicious. These young people, we were all in our teens, uh, going off to Peru. It must be a communist conspiracy of some sort. And uh, so for that reason, we were being uh, carefully monitored, uh, not only at our meetings, but uh, apparently on our, our telephone lines. And, uh, this is not just a paranoid story, but to put it in the context of UFO literature at that time, uh, just before this, Gray Barker's book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, had come out, which, yeah. uh, contained the material that is uh, the origin of the, the, uh, Man in Black stories originally. And, uh, certainly the intelligence community was aware of that book, and they had to be aware, if they were monitoring our telephone lines, of the fact that, uh, uh, I had read it and, uh, John McCoy had read it and, uh, others, and we were talking about it back forth on the telephone, and, uh, even at our meetings, uh, we didn't know what this was, but we kind of thought it, it probably, if it was true that, uh, the man in black, uh, as presented in Barker's material, that it, it must be a government agent of some sort. And, uh, in any case, uh, apparently they saw their opportunity. Uh, we were getting ready to go to Peru, and I think they initially decided, well, if we don't succeed in getting rid of these guys, we'll at least scare them so much they'll never come back to the States, uh, from Peru. And, uh, it may sound a little odd and extreme, but one needs to look over the, uh, now declassified literature about how seriously they took, uh, some of these things, uh, about, uh, uh, UFOs that uh, were, were going on, and, and we're concerned that this had some, conspiratorial aspect that they didn't i don't think they they felt they understood it but they want to make sure that there was nothing dangerous and threatening in in all this so uh we had uh made arrangements and uh to go to peru and of course you had to get uh, your passport and uh arrange it uh it goes through the state department and uh you're um you're getting visas to go to uh peru and um Apparently this one was known. Well, just before we went to Peru, as it happened, uh, uh, back in our, uh, in those days of, of early 1957, uh, this was back in, in the days when I was doing some so-called channeling, which I don't approve in any way, and I think you can get a lot of BS that way, but, uh, <laughs> uh, Friend and I were doing this, and, uh, uh, the material that, uh, came through, uh, indicated that the next night on Friday, I think that was the 19th of January, 1957, when we were going to have a meeting in downtown Corpus Christi in the White Plaza Hotel about our UFO experiences, uh, that uh, there would be there waiting for us a man in black. said he would be dressed in a black suit and that he was uh, inimical to our interest, and uh, we should be very aware and alert because uh, danger could lurk there. Well, of
1: Who course, told you this? Probably. Ray? Uh, yes. Who told you this? Uh, what? Who told you there would be some a man in black waiting there this, for you? This, or you're this,
3: meeting? this was channel material.
1: Oh, oh, okay, okay.
3: <laughs> and uh, of course, as I said, this this could easily have been, you know, just the paranoia. I don't remember if it came through me or through John, who was also doing some. Some this was all kind of semi-conscious channeling, and uh, yeah, you know. But I, I dismissed that as as having read Barker's book, and uh, but there was one thing that. Uh, that he might have provided a clue, our uh, travel agent had told us uh, uh, the day before that uh, he thought we would be interested in knowing that uh, that uh, certain parties within the government were t- t- playing, paying close attention to the fact that we had uh, uh, gotten the passports and were planning on going to Peru. That's all he said. He didn't say FBI or what. He certainly didn't mention man in black. But, uh, as it happened, uh we believe that they were in fact tapping our telephone line, and there was a telephone in fact right there in the room where this jamming was going on and I could have been heard, and I think they decided that this was the opportunity to to uh really scare the devil out of us with a real man in black and uh so we um we went early to the White Plaza hotel, it was up on one of the upper floors and uh uh, when we arrived there uh, early, before anybody else should have been there, we wanted to set up the, the chairs and the, the tables and so forth. Uh, uh, there was, in fact, a very frightening uh, man leaning against the door. He was uh, about six foot two. He was somewhat on the heavy set side. He looked like you, you could cast him in a, a, a Hollywood movie as a hired assassin, and uh, which it turned out that's what he was. But uh, he uh, he was in a black suit, and he was wearing a black tie, black shoes, black socks, white shirt, and he had a, a gray tweed overcoat. He looked like the type that you expect to be smoking a big black cigar as well, but we didn't see any cigar. And uh, But you can imagine the reaction that we had. I mean, this this had been channeled the night before, and here is this so-and-so. He's leaning against the door. It's just say. Like, so you guys think you're going to get in here and tell people something, huh? And uh so John just walked up and said, pardon me, but we need to get in there to set up for a meeting. So he, giving us a nasty look, moved to one side, and so we went inside. Well, he went in, and he sat down in the front row in the exact middle of the front row. Nobody else was there yet. And, um, I mean... uh if there are such things as bad vibes, uh, those were bad vibes. I've never felt anything quite like that in my life. Uh, well, people began to, you know, come and, and fill up the seats. There were, uh, I think, 105 or 107 people there that night. And uh, a lady that was quite psychic, uh, Lee Locker, was uh, she just happened to sit right uh, behind this guy. She later said that she had never felt anything that awful in her whole life. Anyway, uh he sat there and uh... we started the meeting and it was actually not being told we were keeping it uh... confidence that we were leaving the very next uh... morning that was friday night uh... we uh, t- we were going to go to uh... port Arthur, texas to give talk there with, with the ufo group and then we were going down to houston are going to fly to florida from which we would fly to peru uh... with a stopover over the, the plane would stop over that wasn't our interest but the plane stopped over in cuba and it's, uh, then we changed planes in, uh, in, uh, central, in, in, the um, Panama City. And then we flew down to Guayaquil, Ecuador, and, and just stopped there for a little while and flew on down to Lima. And, uh, that's part of the story that I'll bring in later. But this was our itinerary, and nobody knew what our itinerary was. And in the midst of my talking, this six foot two guy that looked like a professional murderer type, popped up out of his seat without raising his hand or asking to take the floor for a minute, he said, Mr. Stanford, we've had enough of this nonsense about these UFOs, space beings. This is all baloney, and you know it. What you really ought to tell people is where you're leaving for tomorrow, why you're going, and how you got the money to go. Well, that was enough to set me off. And I I told him off. I said, look, you sit down there and keep your mouth quiet, and you had better not interrupt this meeting again, or I will have the police haul you out of here. And uh, then I said, as far as where we're going tomorrow, we're going to Port Arthur to talk on UFOs. And, of course, it was quite true. I just didn't give the rest that we Next day, uh, Sunday, we were going to go to... Uh, you know, to Houston, to, to play out to Florida, and, and ultimately to Peru. Yeah. So, um, this guy, uh, I mean, people, it, it was more than what he said. <laughs> it was what people, you could see the faces of people all over that group of more than a 100 people. And uh, 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 John McCoy's parents, who were conservative people, not calling to let their imagination run away with them at all, uh, John's father was a very successful businessman. Fortunately, in his early years, as you'll see, it plays a part in this story. He had he had been a a uh, driver, a race driver, co- racing cars, oh. and uh, uh, it saved our lives. It turns out, but uh, they sensed this, so and they were not the type to get you know upset or anything. But they were on fire inside. They were so upset. They had a feeling that this guy was potentially mortally dangerous to us. And so did a lot of other people. Well, the meeting led out, and a fellow who's still living, uh, Bob Matthews, uh, was going to his car, and he saw this guy went outside, and he had a list, a notebook, and he was taking the license plates of anyone who, you know, that time of night in Corpus Christi, on a Friday night back in those days, around the White Plaza Hotel that was getting in their cars, had been to our meeting, and he was taking the license plate numbers of everyone who was getting in their cars. And and uh, Bob really told him off. And uh, uh, anyway, very sure that we were still up there talking with you know the lingering people that want to talk to you after you know after a talk. Yeah. And so uh, Mr. McCoy came back up, and uh, I believe, no, maybe it was Mrs. McCoy. One of the two came back up. They'd gone down to watch this guy, and uh, whoever it was said, "Look, he has." run the red light going backward in his black, I think it was a Pontiac or a Chevrolet, and he's run through the red light backward, and he's parked right in front of the limousine entrance, and they knew that we were parked just right across Catecourt from the limousine entrance, and that this guy was putting himself in a position. Interestingly, he knew what car we were driving. The car had just been purchased either that day or the day before. It was one of those new 1957 Plymouths with the the tail fins, and uh, he he was. uh, they said, he's waiting there. Obviously, he's going to follow you. Be prepared. We're going to have to keep an eye on this guy, and then we this who whichever one of the cars it was said we have a feeling that he may try to kill you. Well, we uh, got pretty concerned. So we walked right across in front of his car. There, in the car, got uh, in the car. Uh, there was a guy we were taking out to one of our high school buddies uh, that was there. Salisbury Philbert, uh, we took him out. His parents lived out near the Naval Station Corpus Christi, and we were going to take him out there. Well, uh, Rex and I and Salisbury and John got in the car. We took off, and he, he pulled out against the red light and uh, and started uh, uh, following us. And uh, and where we were, is going to be difficult for him to pass us. He went around on the other side of some islands and came toward us going the wrong way, attempting to run his car Part us at the at the point where we were back in those days, the e B. Cole park, uh, which has now been changed and has uh, slopes that go down to the water uh just north of e B. Cole Park, there were cliffs that were forty feet high, and when we approached that area, this is when he was coming at us. He was apparently trying to cause us to try to avoid him and go off the cliffs and of course, on a Friday night, four teenagers in a car, people would say, you know just wild teenager driving." And Mr. McCoy saw this, and he put his early life experience as a racetrack driver into, and he he had a powerful car. I forgot what kind it was. And uh, he ran his car at this guy as he was coming toward us, and this fellow was going so fast when he threw on his brakes to keep Mr. McCoy from hitting him, his car spun around three times, complete three spin-arounds, and we hit the gas, and uh, and that, uh, that you... Plymouth and took off uh, and got Salisbury home, but when we got back, we went to the McCoy House. Uh, it took us a good uh, eight to ten minutes to get inside. His parents were so frightened of this that they had a cedar chest leaning against uh, the front room door. <laughs> they had um, a uh, some kind of a big china cabinet or something leaning against one of the back doors. Uh, the one into the driveway and the other one from the backyard, they had something else equally heavy against it. And it took a long time for them to get these things out of the way and let us in. And then they put it back in place. Uh, Mr. McCoy said, you know, the guy was trying to kid you. <laughs> yeah, tell us about it. And he said, I'm afraid of coming back. He had uh, already called the, the police and found out that the license plate of this man in black was from Bear County, Texas, B-E-X-A-R. Uh, which is a Spanish name, but it, it's uh, it's the county that San Antonio is, and where at that time there were uh, abundant military bases, and uh, we're quite certain that he was in fact a government agent. That uh, that uh, if he didn't succeed in that, at least I think they thought that they would cause us to stay in Peru the rest of our lives for fear of our lives. But I can say that uh, Mr. and Ms. McCarr were witnesses, and there were the four of us in the car. This man was trying to kill us and to make it look like you know a teenage wild well, driving accident. And uh, so that when finally we went to Port Arthur, and then on Sunday morning we went to Houston to take the flight to Florida, uh, a man, a totally different, non threatening looking man, but he looked he looked like a, a federal agent, in a dark blue suit instead of a black suit, got on the plane and sat right in front of us, the middle seat in front of us. And uh, interestingly, when we changed planes in Florida, changed planes and sat in the same place. When we changed planes in uh, Panama City, uh, he did the same thing, and he followed us. He went down and he got out at the airport in Lima, uh, Peru. That was called Lima Tumbo, the airport at that time. And guess what? He checked into the hotel mm-hmm. that we checked into. We checked into. Well, we got a little concerned, and uh, so we decided to move to a different hotel. We were in a expensive, classy hotel downtown, across from the uh, the Independence Plaza there. And so we went to a hotel. It was a nice hotel, but it you know, it was a, Peru, a hotel that, that uh, upper class Peruvians might use, but you know, it's not, it's not your uh, fancy rich American tourist kind of hotel. Interestingly, it was right across the street. We didn't realize this when we made arrangements there. It was right across the street from the prison. And uh, this guy moved over there and checked in in the room right next to ours. The same guy. And what we didn't know, we found out when we got back to the States that he was an FBI agent. He was not the man in black, uh, but he was an FBI agent. And, uh, uh, when we got back to the States, my mother told me that, uh, uh, a couple of very nice FBI men had come to the door and had, uh, asked if they could talk to her that, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Tom Shell had reported that, uh, they thought we were communists going down to start some kind of a communist, uh, something down in, in Peru and, you know, then, Come back to the United States, and um, which was ludicrous. In fact, this as, as South Fanatic club. My brother and his high school friends. I wasn't involved in it, but in high school, they had a Youth for McCarthy, Joseph McCarthy Club. <laughs> I mean, as far from you know being communist as our communist sympathizers as you could possibly be. Uh, although Rick had moderated by the time he got out of high school and came to his senses, and. Uh, but anyway, uh then we knew uh, why the uh agent had, had followed us down there, you know, and checking their hotel, but to make matters worse, uh the next morning when we decided to go down and uh, have some orange juice uh in the uh in the bar down uh downstairs of the hotel, when the uh, we I forget what floor we were on, but when the doors opened, standing right in front of us was Raul Castro, Fidel Castro's brother. And uh <laughs> John, who could speak better Spanish than Rex and I, engaged him in conversation, and uh, he explained to us that he was there to uh, go to the prison and to try to solicit uh, those who were going to be getting out of prison uh, to come and uh, fight in the revolution. I guess they were paying them. I don't know, but uh, anyway, he said they were there to, you know, try to get these people coming out of prison to go and, and, and go to Cuba and, and fight the revolution with them. And here we were, you know, uh, the guy. It seems door. almost strange within the hotel. I don't know if you knew that we ever encountered him in, in the in the uh, elevator. But uh, anyway, uh, ultimately, I'm sure that the FBI concluded that we were nothing but a bunch of innocent fools <laughs> going down to Peru. We were uh, taken in by uh, temporarily by the uh, the channeling hoaxes of the late George Hunt Rick Williamson, and uh, they were starting a, a so-called commune down there, which turned out to be a ridiculous fiasco. But that's that's why we were going to Peru. But the man in black story, I can say, is absolutely true. I've never, uh, you know, I read the stories that John Keel has written about man in black. And uh, to tell you the truth, I I think there's a lot of fiction. You'll find people that have had an experience that the government couldn't, Care squatty doodle about you know I mean it, it doesn't threaten them at all this, these these things that these people are talking about and the, the lack of evidence and so on and you know they'll have them making up stories about sinister men that look like they could be half alien hybrids, hybrids or something and uh, I don't buy those uh, and uh, but this one I buy because we were in the middle of it. And we had all these witnesses, and, uh, and when we finally got back and, and talked with the people that had been in the audience, we knew a lot of them personally, uh, and they were on our mailing list, and, and some of them were real good friends, uh, everyone had said they had never experienced anything like that. They all said they felt that this man was there to kill us, and of course then we told them what happened. So that's the story of the man in black in the early days when the country was, of course, totally paranoid about communists. And I don't think it had so much to do with any concern about anything we knew about UFOs because, frankly, then we didn't know much. But I think it was, you know, it was, it, it was other concerns that they had.
1: Well, they might think that they might be able to find something out from a civilian UFO organization and, you know, I guess, like you said, there was a communist threat. The, the interesting thing you mentioned was having Raul Castro in the hotel meeting you. It almost yeah, sounds it, like it was
2: staged.
3: Yeah, that, that, that was really, uh, I mean, it was one of, one of these things that uh, you wonder uh, you, you wonder how the universe is made up, you know.
2: <laughs> right. it,
3: it seems stranger than, than we can conceive in our minds.
1: Well, what I was, I was thinking conspiratorially, and thinking that maybe Castro was was um, there for some reason to make it, because you were standing, one of your group was standing there talking to him. I mean, well, how we much were more incriminating we were
2: Talking
3: to him. I mean, Rex and I and, and John, and uh, and uh, also I think uh, that uh, Doug Sharon I think was with us. I know that John Rex and I were there, and uh, so uh, you know he got out and went different way than we did. We went to the to the the bar, or the restaurant, whatever we went to for some use that money. But uh that's that, that part of the story. It was early on and uh uh the later on in, in San Jose in, in nineteen sixty one when I gave a talk on UFOs there, uh there was, as I mentioned when we were on the fort, the lady with the wooden purse with knobs on the back that, that came up and asked some carny questions about what do you think about communism? And so on. And she was obviously an FBI agent back in the days before they had all this stuff miniaturized and you never knew they were recording you. It was obvious she was recording me to, you know, to anyone it like myself. But, uh, other than that, uh, you know, we've had problems with the, uh, with the CIA back in, in the 70s, uh, in our project to monitor UFOs. Uh, their one of their concerns was, uh, uh, as it turns out, uh, was, to find out who was uh, sending us big checks every month from the Middle East, and uh, I think I told this the last time I was on, so I, I won't go into it and how we found out about it, because there are a lot of more productive things and more interesting things I think that we could talk about.
1: I don't know if you did talk about that, where the money came from to do the, the research, who was, was interested enough.
3: Okay, let, let me explain it. That uh, we had two people. Uh, that were the main financiers. We had a non-profit organization, Association for Understanding of Man. Right. Uh, but uh, Project Started was a subsidiary of, and uh, two of the people in it, it had, they happened to be uh, males that uh, at the time were not married, and uh, one of them was a hydraulics engineer who was working on various jobs in the Middle East. At times he would be in Egypt, at times he would be in uh, uh, Iran, and at times he would be, I think, in Iraq, and I forget where else... In that general part of the world, he was and was sending his checks from, but they were monitoring our mail, and uh, we learned about this quite uh, accidentally. One of these serendipitous things. Uh, the brother of my wife back then—I'm not my wife of uh, 21, 22 years, whatever uh, now—but of my former wife, his mother, my children. Uh, she had a brother, and uh, that uh, had joined the U.S. Navy, and uh, he was working as a hospital orderly stationed in uh, Norfolk, uh, Virginia, or Newport News, wherever the the Navy is there. And uh, he would uh, come up to the uh, D.C. area on some of his weekends, you know, just to take in whatever kind of entertainment or interesting things might be going on to meet interesting people and so on. And uh, somehow or other, he met a guy that uh, the guy never mentioned where he worked, And uh, one day, uh, uh, now, this fellow, who I'll call Tripp, who was the brother of my, uh, that was his nickname anyway, of my wife at that time. Um, He uh, was asked by this fellow, when they were up here in in the D.C. area, this guy provided wheels for him, you know, when when he would come up here, I guess, on the train or the bus or whatever. And uh, the fellow said, you know, he said, you're from Texas. Have you ever heard of Project Starlight International? Now, they're an organization tracking UFOs with instruments and, you know, Tripp didn't want to let on so, you know, he said, yes, I've heard about him." why well, he didn't tell me that he had, he had just donated the money to build our uh, uh, eight-foot chain-link fence with barbed wire goes the top of it around there and uh, one of our, our two facilities, our lab facilities out there on our 400 acres and uh, uh, he said, well, yeah, I've heard about it. He said, why, why do you ask? And the guy said, well, you know, I'm really not supposed to tell this, but he said, I work for the CIA in Reston, I believe wherever it is out there in Virginia, and uh, the main headquarters out there. And he said, uh, you know, if, if you'd been around our office for the last several weeks, the name Project Starlight International would be heard by you more than any other <laughs> name. And he said, well, why so? And he said, well, they're receiving, understand that Tripp did not know this. He had no idea that big checks were coming to us from this fellow in the middle east who was a hydraulics engineer under various contracts working in the middle east you okay. were getting paid a lot of money for this this work i suspect the hydraulics had to do something to do with the oil business i, I i'm not sure but I, I suspect that or maybe maybe there were some dams i don't know yeah. but anyway um uh, he was sending us some some good money every month and uh you know thousands of dollars every month and uh he didn't have any particular use for it otherwise, and he really felt that uh, instrument of UFO studies was a, uh, a worthwhile uh, endeavor. And uh, uh, But here's what the guy told Tripp. He said, Tripp, so well, why are they concerned about this? He said, well, they're concerned that uh, whoever is providing this, that the money may actually be sent through this fellow from a foreign power whose interests are inimical to the interests of the United States and who are doing this in order to provide them money that ultimately could enable them to embarrass the U.S. government. Well, wow, when I heard that, and and I said this has to be a true story because Tripp didn't know we were getting money from anybody in the Middle East at all. And so he couldn't have made up this story as a fiction, you know. He had to have been told this, and uh, uh, I thought it typically paranoid of the government. Their, their interest was they were concerned that there was this foreign power giving money to uh, – uh, possibly uh, embarrass. Well, why would embarrass the government if there are no UFOs? We're out to get hard data, the kind that will speak to physical science about UFOs, and indeed uh, I mean, I suppose they could become embarrassing to the government if they're going to continue lying about the subject. So their concerns were, in their minds, quite justified. I think them typical of, of the intelligence community, perhaps. And um uh, uh, that fellow and one other person who was who was a uh, a uh, commercial real estate broker uh, in austin were the main financiers of our uh, of our operation, contrary to the rumor one south- major south american u f o group was telling everybody we were financed by the c i a you know I wonder <laughs> that was really quite funny because uh, the CIA was concerned about where <laughs> we were getting our money. If they were giving us money, they wouldn't have had to have been concerned at all. And I can't, haven't been able to come up with any reason why the CIA would finance a group trying to get hard data on UFOs and, uh, and quite interested in you know, in even you know coming up with it openly. But, you know, that so, so grows the paranoia.
1: I think they'd be interested because if you were uh, getting results, they'd like to know about them without having to pay for them. Um...
3: Well... They, uh, they might have been interested in, in, in knowing what our results are, but we never saw any evidence of that. Uh, for, now, by contrast, the, uh, the United States Air Force trusted us, knew us, and, uh, had great confidence in us, and I can prove this, and I will ultimately be proving this in the next, uh, uh couple of years or so, because I have tape recordings that prove it. Um uh, we were, um uh, well, the, uh, Air Force Intelligence at Bergstrom Air Force Base, which doesn't exist as one of those many bases that I guess it was during the Reagan era, or whenever it was, that were torn down. There's now the the Austin International Airport is where Bergstrom Air Force Base was. But... uh, they had the Air Force Base there. In fact, one or possibly two, according to some rumors, uh, SR-71s were stationed there. We'd hear them take off in the middle of the night. We wondered where this incredible roar was coming from, and we didn't find out till later the SR-71s were there. But they knew of me from, from way back. Uh, in 1967, uh, June, on the on the anniversary of the Ken O'Donnell thing, I had gone out alone by myself uh, out to the Mansfield Dam, and it had an incredible UFO encounter in which a UFO... Uh, uh, that was passing over a an elongated uh cigar shaped thing glowing kind of a, a bluish color had uh, I had foolishly pointed a big spotlight at it and began to flash a a abbreviated form of pie and uh, and it stopped and then I got real scared and uh <laughs> I was glad I had my two hundred and twenty five pound Saint Bernard dog with <laughs> with me <laughs> in my little Volkswagen bug. But um uh there's more to that story, but uh I had when I got back into town I had called Bergstrom to uh merely see if they would take an interest, their reaction. And so they took down certain information and uh thanked me and unannounced I was staying uh in an, a uh in a a, part, a garage apartment behind a lovely home in uh in Tarritown in Austin. And uh one night as I was about to go out to dinner a knock came at the door and it was a uh, officer whose name and, and rank I have uh uh recorded in my father don't recall off the top of my head but uh, he was there and he said he wanted to talk with me about this case and um uh, he he uh was really fascinated and I gave him very objectively the details including the, the response of the object and my reaction to it and I told him about a strange thing that happened on the way out there I had been driving out there and uh in my little Volkswagen bug and uh in front of me, there was a little red sports car. And, uh, it had, uh, I wanted to, uh, to go faster than it, but we were on curved roads out there in, in the hill country west of Austin. on I believe it was 22, highway 2222. And, uh, uh, so they very politely pulled over and let me go on. And, uh, so I went on out to the dam and parked, and, uh, I had been there a while, and uh, this car came on up. It pulled right in where I pulled in. It went right on beyond and pulled with his with his car par- par- uh, pointing up a slope uh, in the direction of the area where the dam was, and uh it began to flash its light like code in the sky. And um, uh, well, well, that's when about that time I might have to check my notes, but somewhere about that time was when this actual UFO showed up. And uh, anyway, I described it to the uh intelligence officer in, in the best detail I could, and. Um, Uh, He made an interesting comment. He said, uh, who do you think these people might have been that were in the red car? And I said, I have no idea. I said, it was just an odd coincidence that, that they would apparently have an interesting UFO and come out there and flash these lights in the sky and this thing would show up. He said, have you considered the possibility that those were, in fact, alien operatives that look like humans that will pass as humans but are aliens? I said, no, I really had not thought about that. It, it seemed not a coincidence but I hadn't, hadn't thought along that line. He said, well, he said, uh, you might find it interesting to know that uh, that there are, I have reason to believe, he said he didn't say, how are you? uh that uh, there were alien operatives working on there that could not be distinguished from human beings. Oh, God, this is amazing that this intelligence officer could tell me this. But uh, uh anyway, he said, let's suppose that uh, the... The lights were just to give a physical location, and then it was an invisible beam or an invisible source of communication after that, once they knew where it was and that they were, they were, uh, they may have responded to your light, thought you were the other people or something. He said, I don't know, but he said, uh, he said, think about it. He said, this may be going on, you know, Mr. Tanford. So anyway, took the report, and believe it or not, much to my surprise, when, uh, well, I did get, after I, uh, had moved from Austin down to Carpus Christi, I did get a letter from Hector Quintanilla saying they didn't have enough information. Well, I wrote him a letter really telling him off. I said, that's ridiculous. And I named the officer from Intel. I said, I get so much information. I said, if you don't have enough information, uh, to analyze this, then there's something wrong with the system. I said, this man was very careful. And uh I said, so, I frankly, I think you're doing this, you know, just to try to get only a few details and claim you don't have better, and therefore you will say that uh, there was insufficient information to determine that it was uh, an unidentified object or that it was a known object. But I said, you better not write this one off, Hector. <laughs> I put that in the letter. And sure enough, when the Blue Book Files came out, you'll see that for Austin, they listed as Austin, Texas. That's the nearest main known place to... To Mansfield Dam, which is out west of Austin in the hill country, uh, they listed as a true unidentified. But this intelligence officer seemed to have a lot of confidence in the truthfulness and accuracy of my reporting. And, uh, but then of course, uh, when we became active with Project started. when I moved, uh, back to, to Austin, uh, they of course had access to all of that via the media. Well, one night, uh, in october i don 't remember the exact date, but uh, it was before we had all of our wonderful equipment and laboratory set up out there, so we would we would gather out there and with our cameras and uh, and watch for objects and try to take simultaneous photographs from different locations and uh, that night, uh, I had gotten rather chill in October kind of a front had moved in i guess and i I said i've got to get in the car and get my, my sweater." some in the car, I had chided these people that had been going out with us uh uh trying to train them because they would get excited about airplanes with strobes and think they were UFOs and they were wasting a lot of project film and and you know uh getting over reactive to things that they shouldn't even be concerned about. So I chided. I said, now from now on you I had told them, Well you don't do anything. You don't take any pictures without asking me first whether it's worthy of taking pictures. And, uh, so I'm in, in the car getting my sweater, and, uh, uh, I hear them say, uh, Ray, can we take pictures? Can we take pictures? And I, and I, I jumped out of the car,
0: and here is a
3: textbook domed flying saucer, domed desk, coming straight down, right over, I mean, clear as a bell. And, uh, I said, you damn fools! <laughs> I said, what in the hell did you he ask me for? He said well, you said you had to ask? Well, believe me, I, this thing is coming, and it's getting pretty close, you know, within a few hundred feet. And they all sit out and I say, okay, uh, I'll count down. Five, four, three, it keeps coming down. Two, one, click. Well, when I got to one, the thing started turning down like a rheostat. And when it got to click, <laughs> we wanted synchronized pictures for, you know, for, for triangulation. And they were spread out across the, 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 the open area there. And uh, the thing was gone. Well, believe it or not, within incredibly short amount of time—I'm talking about no more than three and a half minutes—and it might have been sooner—two F-4 Phantoms came right over our lab site within 50 feet of our heads, and uh, there was the one, and then the other. And uh, I mean, this was an area that we knew they had to have IR scanning, infrared scanning, because uh, otherwise, no pilot would be crazy enough to fly out there in, among those hills at that kind of altitude at night. And, uh, well, some minutes later, a prop plane, we don't know what the significance of that one was, but an Air Force prop plane flew over at the same altitude. And uh, I think it was so they could see more slowly. Well, some months later, and I'm, I'm leading up this because I want to show people that contrary to the BS, that people that don't want to acknowledge that someone has gotten better evidence than they've ever done in all of their careers in ufology uh say about me the u.s government by way of the air force knew that we were well aware of what we were doing very competent here's why a few uh i'd have to check the date but a few weeks or a couple of months after that one day my secretary got a call from uh, the colonel was head of intelligence at uh at uh Bircham Air Force Base, and he he merely asked uh, something that wasn't that surprising. Uh, he asked if uh, we would like for them to have people that called and reported UFOs to them contact us, so we would have the information. And she said, "Yes, that would be very nice. Thank you." And uh, so that's that's what happened. Well, the next day, uh, another officer called. It wasn't a colonel; it was it was a fairly high officer. I don't remember the, the rank. I remember the name, but I'm not going to call it. Uh, we will be releasing this in time. Because we have tape recording this conversation, um, he called and said that he had been authorized to call, and one he wanted to ask if we would allow about uh, between eleven and fourteen intelligence officers from the Air Force to come out and visit our lab site. And I said, well, I'll have to uh, take that up with the powers that be. You know, we have a board of directors here, and although and, oh, I'm the director of the project, I really feel like I, you know I have to rely on them, so I can't give you an answer right now. I'm sorry. He said, look, I'd like to make you uh, a further offer. He said, we know, well, you said, we had called them up in the, in the interim at some point uh, back within the year or so before, maybe even before this incident where the object was coming right down on top of us. Uh, we had had a UFO that hovered for over 10 minutes west of us, and uh, while it was hovering, we were taking pictures. And uh, I called the uh, command post, Grudel Tower, at uh, Bergstrom, and uh, they knew me, and... Uh, they assured me that the, that they were not able to identify that this was a, you know, an object that they could not identify and that they had it under observation, presumably by radar and maybe visually too. I don't recall. But anyway, uh, they said we could be sure that this was not a known, uh, aircraft. So anyway, we took pictures and ultimately when it started moving and came uh, past us to the south, we have pictures that prove that I, uh, successfully hit the object with our laser. We have a picture of the laser sweeping. There's just enough moisture that night that you can see where the laser had started and where it stopped, and you can see it sweep across that, if you draw a line across there, and you can see where it reflected strongly off of the object, whatever it was. And uh, But anyhow, um, they said, we want to, to make another offer. They said, uh, uh, have you wondered why we shut up so soon after your the object was coming down right over you and he named the date in October and i said yes we did he said well we were watching this thing on radar and he said we knew we had already reconnoitered your site that wasn't what we were there for that night he said but we'd already we knew exactly where you were and we knew this thing had come down right over your site and when it disappeared it disappeared you know on our radar he said what happened there he said we wanted to find out He said, we were afraid that it had landed, and if so, we wanted to get out there, reconnoitre it, and then get in contact with you guys and uh, see what you got. And uh, he said, that's why we were there. It was on radar, and we we scrambled, and that's what it was. He said, but what we'd like to do is make an agreement with you. Now, uh, when you think about this, Greg, and these certain... Predictable parties, Dick Hall and some others that I won't name, that have been trying to put me down over the years simply because, for one, I exposed uh, 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 the cover up in Goddard Space Flight Center, but the metal that was analyzed there that from the squirrel landing. Uh, they better take notice of what it costs the taxpayer, what it costs the U.S. government to scramble jets. He said that. They so knew uh, of our liability in in spotting and recognizing UFOs and distinguishing them from any known uh, prosaic object, including aircraft, that if at any point in time, I would call and he gave me the number of the command posts that they wanted me to call, they said, we can scramble right from there immediately. He said, we will scramble two F-4s and they will have uh, infrared uh, scanners in them. And uh, we will run them over and get all the data that we can on this object while you have it in the area. And I said, well, uh, what's in it for us? (laughs) He said, well, you know, uh, we we already have scanned through your site. We've recorded it with aerial pictures. We can provide them for you to put on your computer with your uh, Operation Argus tracking system that will show right over what terrain the object is located when you use your triangular camera system with shaft encoders to it goes into the computer and I said that doesn't sound like much of a payoff let me explain my position uh, if we call you up when we've got a UFO coming down or nearby and if two F4s come heading that way what do you suppose is going to happen with that UFO history would indicate that it's going to get the heck out of there so it doesn't seem like to me a viable payoff and he said well if you ever change your mind all you have to do is call this number and we will scramble because we know that you would not report something as a UFO that was not really a UFO. And, uh, by the way, I did call the number. I told him, I checked it. Out. I did call the number and I verified that it was the, uh, uh, uh command post number. And that in fact, I, I heard, in fact, uh, one of the, uh, sound like an f uh, taking off when, uh, I was talking to them and, and verifying the, uh, correctness of the number. And I have a tape regarding this conversation, and it will ultimately be released in detail with an officer's name and so on and so forth. And I can say, therefore, if people want to say that I don't have credibility or that the project and its works did not have credibility, name any other UFO organization in the world that was ever offered such a thing. There are none. And uh, so I think that's a pretty good backup from a pretty good source that had a lot of intelligence uh, on our operation.
1: Yeah, You know, Rick, oh, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. That's an incredible story. I'm glad you told it. One, I wanted to ask you, people probably don't know what uh, Project Starlight was, and two, have you ever considered that the Air Force or somebody was testing something, they wanted you to let them know that you'd seen so that they could figure out that somebody had actually seen something they were trying to keep out of view, meaning, meaning at least some of the what were these UFOs was something the government was developing?
3: No, I don't think so. Uh, that, In first place, the hypothesis seems too convoluted. Uh, there are no uh, R&D uh, companies involved with uh, aircraft uh, development uh, in the Austin, uh, in fact, that, that part of Texas at that time. Uh, if they wanted to test something, they would tested out in New Mexico or, or somewhere else. Uh, you, don't, uh, you don't send it over. You don't send a, a secret experimental craft over where guys can get light spectra from its exotic propulsion emissions uh, or high-resolution photographs, magnetometer recordings if it's using magnetic propulsion in any way, gravity wave recordings if, it's, if it has gravity-like effects, and uh, sound recordings and everything. You just don't do that. You don't risk that kind of of, uh, data being obtained on experimental craft.
1: I sometimes have a uh, co-host here. Uh, Have you listened to the show and ever heard him talking?
3: I'm I'm sorry, did you ask me something?
1: Yes, I said, have you ever listened to the show when my friend Walter has been on with us? No,
3: no, no, I haven't. The only time I've listened to him is when I'm on there.
1: Walter is uh, here. He was listening to you, and he said some of the stuff that you said sounded like at least when he was work, he used to work for Air Force in, in uh, intelligence, OSI, in the 1990s, and he said some of the stuff sounded like standard operating procedure when you were trying to get intelligence on something you were testing. This may not have been um, relevant in the 70s, though. I'm not sure.
3: No, that's that's not possible in the first place. You don't you don't send out two F-4s uh, uh, as a masquerade to, to check on something. That in the first place. You don't need – I'll have to say your friend is full of it, and I'll say it to his face right now. He's not even know what he's talking about. You do not do this kind of thing in in testing secret equipment. You do not try to see how much uh, people can get with their cameras and so forth of this. Uh, You simply don't do it. And I don't know where he got the idea, but I can tell you that it's 100% false and that uh, uh, I know what I'm doing and I know what I'm saying – and I will release this, and there, uh, all of this will be proven in time. And it is not a, a ridiculous scheme like that. I'm sorry. that's absurd. Uh,
1: Walter said he wanted to say something.
4: Go
1: ahead. Oh, can you hear him? Sure. Hey, let, let me put the phone up near him so you can actually hear him.
4: I, I'm just I, – its I, it's not absurd, the idea that they would do these things that I'm suggesting because – That it's not absurd? Well, that I spent um, some years on uh, active duty as an OSI agent and officer who was part of program protection. Um, You know, I'm... Pardon? I was chief of a counterespionage operations branch that dealt with uh, classified uh, program information on a regular daily basis, highly classified levels, and also dealt with... uh, Program security and um, some things that you know I can't really talk about that had to do with advanced platforms, um, and spent. Let, let me tell you, something. I am considering you a
3: counterintelligence agent right now for the kind of statement you're making because it's BS. I'm sorry, it's BS, and you don't know what you're talking about at all. And you haven't told us what kind of projects you are on. Let me tell you, there is more BS out about advanced craft that the government has than can shake a stick at it's absurd okay
4: okay Ray 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 Ray
3: from crashed UFOs period and I know this from the inside
4: hey Ray I'm gonna be polite here and it's you know it's Greg's show and I'm not going to get into this with you on Greg's show Um, you're welcome to contact me on a personal level and we can discuss it at any time then but uh you go ahead and talk about what you're talking about. I know what I'm talking about. And, um, you know... Uh,
3: anybody in any form in Air Force Intelligence is there on a need-to-know basis. Right. And tell me, what was your need-to-know?
4: My need-to-know? For one thing, I was... chief. Uh, what, what, what
3: gives you the idea? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to answer, answer you, Ray. Craft out. Let me ask the question putting secret craft out Let in me front answer of it. Cameras and electronic, sophisticated electronic and optical equipment, uh, just to see what people will report. They
2: know what they have there, so why the hell
4: would they? Ray, Ray, up? let me answer it. Let me answer it. Two, two words. I got two words for you to answer that. It's called perception management. Okay. Baloney. You've wait a minute. You're you're connected with all this, and you've never heard the phrase perception management. I don't
0: know about it. Oh yes.
4: What is it?
3: Look, you're uh, putting forward the idea that they can have people think that their secret craft
4: are, in fact, alien craft, and therefore it protects them in the security sense. It
3: protects them. That's exactly what you're talking about. It's the same BS the government put out about the U-2. And I can say anybody who would ever mistake a U-2 for a UFO based on classical descriptions of the
4: book had better get some glasses. I don't confuse the U-2 for the other advanced that are as. Why do you refer to them as platforms? <laughs> well, because that's what we in the Air Force refer to them as.
2: The Air Force is not involved
3: in that kind of thing to start with. A research and development is conducted under contract by people like Lockheed right, and other companies. And Lockheed worked on something resembling a UFO, but it was backward as hell. Compared to the things, look, the that things right that we film, motion pictures and still pictures, have properties, and I was going to talk about this. Have properties that there's no way the government has these things in the first place. We have triangulation cases. We have one in Austin from October 15, 1954, and which, by the way, during this event, uh, Bergstrom sent up two F4s to try to reach it and couldn't reach it. Well, we triangulated it. It was a mothership. It was a elongated thing. How do you know? And it had objects going to and fro. The thing was 1,400 feet long, and it was at 19 miles altitude, and it was moving sideways, not along its axis of radial symmetry. And objects were going to and from it. We optically tracked these. We had a total of 13 witnesses. We had motion picture camera and two different sets of still pictures from a 63 mile baseline. The fastest object to move from this traveled at three quarters the speed of light in the atmosphere. Now, if you want to tell me this is government stuff, go ahead, yeah. and I'll laugh.
4: Yeah, it's some of a, a lot of a lot more of it than most people want to um, admit to themselves is government stuff, and um, there is perception management. Uh, the Air Force is more involved in this stuff on this level than some people want to accept. And, you know, I know You're what I'm talking
3: about. It, are you telling me that the government flies around 1,400-foot objects with smaller objects going to and from? That suggests coming from a very far distance. And uh,
4: Guy, Why necessarily?
3: Across those distances. Uh, and I don't think the Air Force has any need to put up 1,400-foot jobs with uh, crap moving like that. By the way, we did get daylight pictures of the crap close enough that you can see inside. And if you want to say they've got an Air Force pilot that is about three or three-and-a-half feet tall and has a bald head and pointed ears. Go ahead.
1: All right. Hey, Ray, it's yeah. Greg again. I did not have Walter on here to to, uh, to challenge you in in a way that made you feel uncomfortable. He just disagreed with you, and he's here. He's just well, a friend he's, of mine. Well, he's,
3: he's, he's pitching a line of BS. That's what, exactly what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's basing a whole story on a little bit of experience of his, and he doesn't know. I have a way of knowing what is being done in research and development. On the inside, he doesn't.
2: All
1: right, Ray. I wanted to ask you what Project Starlight was.
3: The the Project Starlight was uh, a subsidiary of the Association of the United States strictly for the purpose of trying to get hard data on UFOs with the instruments, uh, some of which I already mentioned. And uh, the name... We recently changed the name. Uh, It turns out that back in about 1984 or 5, Greer uh, had... Created an organization by that name, even as he as he created the c City organization, trying to make people think he was the the city, surface extraterrestrial or intelligence organization. Right. And so we changed the name so we're not mistaken for Greer's operation that charges rich people money to go out and teach them to telepathically contact UFOs using flashlights and and mental telepathy for uh, several thousand dollars
1: right yeah i i I was wondering what was going to be done about that because of the the name i didn 't you know did greer even Greer even know about this before he went out and named his organization that?
3: oh yeah yeah Greer uh, but everybody knew about it uh, you know I had been on uh, uh on the Phil Donahue with Heineck, and that had been that was replayed played at least eight times that I know about. And every time Phil was out of the country, in fact, they told the Newsweek reporter that they, they ran it. Uh, and, uh, it was, I was on, uh, to tell the truth when back, when Joe Garagiola was host and, uh, people, they were trying, you know, on that, that show, you have two other people trying to convince people that, you know, that they're really the person that is running Project Starlight and so on. And it was in, uh, major magazine that was discussed uh, in Newsweek when Carter was trying to get the truth about UFOs. And and uh, so we were well-known, and certainly Greer had to know about us. Anyone in UFOlogy knew about us. We were featured in Hynek's publication and Mufon's publications and publications all over the world, in fact.
1: How did Project Starlight start? Why did you? How did you come up with the instrumentation, and what did you find? And what was the instrumentation?
3: Okay, okay. Uh, Project Starlight started... As an inspiration, after I investigated the Socorro case, I decided, well, you know, this thing left physical traces on the ground. If we'd had instruments there, we surely should have picked up something from a propulsion system like this. So uh, I began the effort there, but we didn't have a lot of money into it. We we were very naive in the beginning. We we had some cameras, but we didn't have sophisticated equipment, and we... uh, uh, Made two different kinds of large lighting systems on the surface of the desert. This was uh, kind of uh, an extrapolation from Don Quixote advocating a project Lure, as he called it, which is naive as heck. To, you know, his idea was to make the UFOs think that there's a disabled UFO on the ground. Well, that that's absurd. And that wasn't what we were trying to do. We used, for example, uh, a we created in in lights. Over a thousand flights uh, for example the the object as described by Lonnie Zamora, the more of symbol on the side of it uh, had a uFO on the desert symbol coming uh you know coming down in fact landing this thing landing and uh, we uh, we put a lot of effort into it, but it was really naive and uh, finally, when we moved to Texas, we still had some idea of, of signal. we used a large light circle a hundred feet in diameter with uh, a hundred and some odd lights around it that were uh, sequenced uh, in various patterns uh, by a computer. Uh, No, no, I'm sorry. It wasn't that time. We were working with the control system. And when we got the magnetometer going, we found out it made so much uh, magnetic noise uh, that would disturb anything we would get magnetometrically uh, concerning UFOs. We we stopped using that system, and we we went to... uh, uh, we even had a system for studying light bend around UFOs, and uh, uh, it involved a, a laser uh, modulated for video. By the way, just in case uh, they wanted to respond, it, we carried some some images of UFOs that we consider reliable and showed them projecting a, a sine wave back toward our uh, uh, receiver, which was a one thousand uh, hundred, let's say two thousand one hundred ten millimeter, uh, catadioptric telescope with a. Um, with a uh, video amplifier and photo multiplier on the back. But if if this UFO uh, is at a location that the laser is reflecting off of it when the laser is not pointing at it, but being recorded on the video that was in parallel with the system, then you would uh, have some pretty good evidence that light was being bent. We didn't ever get that kind of evidence. Uh, We didn't have much success except the one that I hit with the, the laser that night. But we did have excellent success uh, in field trips at various places, and excellent su- success from the air down in Mexico on December fourth, nineteen eighty. And uh, by the way, for your friend there, I would ever know that on 12 seventy-seven from thirty-nine thousand feet, brandy flight nine, uh, that would be Laguardia to DFW. I filmed a an object that we were able to uh, measure. My two methods, one is by its shadow on a cloud layer at 11,000 feet, and the other was by its generation of a, a strong, um, well, it first generated a, a, a big sphere of plasma off either end. It would pulse the magnetic fields we have evidence of from multiple Faraday rings generated on those occasions when the plasma would go crazy and would shove off in a column, a plasma column off the end. Now, uh, when this happened, when the plasma sphere, as we call it, collapse, it would create a shock phenomenon that would expand at the speed of sound. I was filming in polarized light. I was filming in uh, horizontally polarized light, and uh, you could see the the refraction of the backlighting through this expanding sphere. Which is moving at the speed of sound uh, at the altitude the object was located, of course, and uh, we were able to determine by that means and by measurement of shadow on the cloud that the object was not the 1,400 feet I mentioned, but 14,000 feet long. And uh, Dr. Harris, our, our staff Ph.D. astronomer, uh, graduate of the University of Arizona Tucson, did a calculation: the beam that projected off the end. At one point, I had moved it over because the beam was so long. I moved it over the right side of the field of view and gone to a wide angle, and this beam would go off the left side of the field of view. Now that we know it was going beyond that, but that cut it off at about 140, 145 nautical miles uh, uh, length. And uh, Dr. Harris did a calculation of the energy. This is 1977. Uh, The energy in the beam, absolute minimum calculation, extremely conservative, was 19 times 10 10 to the 12 power watts. The U.S. not only was not capable of producing anything of that that size of the object, but also at the energy level. And uh, there were 5,000-foot deltas. We have this on film, color daylight film, docking with this object. There were six of them docked. before it rotated about 90 degrees and... uh, took off vertically. Now, if anybody wants to tell me that's government uh, operations, uh, I'm sorry, that's not true.
1: Somebody wrote in to me and asked, um, g- given that your, uh, your research and experience in Project Starlight, what kind of directions would you take instrumented research today? Okay, that's an excellent question. And uh, what I would
3: recommend is one, that people who want to go up. I want to say put this in a in a in a comparative context. Uh we just heard on the internet that uh that MUFON is is uh, being financed by Bob uh, um, what's in uh, Bigelow. Uh, right. to uh to uh, go and people make reports and uh, report in what they found out and it he will fly in overnight uh, equipment. Well this is uh you know this is like visiting the barn after the horses or cattle are out, uh, you can get some information, but you can't get diagnostic information about propulsion uh, that is in any way as significant as you can by actually filming the objects in action. Now, I recommend that anyone trying to film these objects in action use real film. One is people won't be able to say that it was created in Photoshop, but the other reason is more important. Uh, because of the way that film records the image compared to the way that uh, the electronic and, and digital media uh, record images. And uh, there are some incredibly high speed uh, phenomena that happen around these objects. They are so reliably there in genuine images, uh, for example, in daylight, that uh, I can look at a photo and tell you whether it's a real macar or not right then and there because these phenomena always happen. Uh, around a, a bona fide UFO that does not have a terrestrial origin. I'm not saying that there are not uh, some some research craft out there, uh, but they're, when you've had the experience we've had in filming these things and tracking them, you, you cannot mistake anything that we have presently for, uh, for these objects. And uh, anyway, this was 1977. Uh, two objects zipped from under our eyeliner out toward the mothership, and when people see them, they're mind boggled. Uh, they, they look, uh, somewhat, well, uh, the upper one especially looks somewhat like a, a stealth aircraft. But they are not. Uh, they're not at all. Their speed was way, I mean, it wasn't just supersonic, it was hypersonic. They maneuvered like hummingbirds or dragonflies. And, uh, not only that, but in, uh, maneuvering, for example, the upper one has, uh, these things produce tart beams. That are utilized to electrify certain parts of the atmosphere in the area of the beam that is moved magnetic around it.
2: What beams?
3: And, uh, and and so you you get these beams that are, are changing and and projecting depending on where the craft is going. We can even look at a picture and tell you where the craft was next heading by seeing how the beams are projected to electrify the air appropriately uh, so that by magnetic lift, they're moved in uh, the appropriate direction.
1: What kind of beams, did you say?
3: Uh, I'm talking about plasma beams. These are collimated plasma beams, apparently.
1: They, oh, okay.
2: they look
3: like plasma, and they're they are, uh, sometimes they are bright-colored. Uh, sometimes they are... In the high, arc, when you get very extreme arcing, you'll get a kind of a a blue, it's almost a, let's call it a um, indigo uh, color. Uh, and sometimes the beams actually get into that deep, beautiful blue-purple color. So uh, we have thousands of frames and photographs of objects utilizing this kind of propulsion. But um, uh, we have... Around the objects, though, that we have filmed in daylight, we have other evidences of high-energy exotic propulsion. And uh, one of – well, several of the – we have, for example, we have excellent film in daylight of the magnetic field rendered visible in daylight by plasma contouring. Uh, which is more abundant at the top of the object, and it uh the level of plasma drops off as it comes around the curve to the magnet. You can see the complete magnetic field. You can see the refraction shadow of the high-speed part of the magnetic field, the top of it, down on the clouds 12, uh, I'm sorry, at 11,000 feet uh, uh, below. And... Um, Then we have another kind of field entirely that is not a magnetic field but can, under certain circumstances, be mistaken for a magnetoplasma dynamic field. And that would be uh, a field that... um well i'm not going to I'm not going to describe it I'll, I'll leave this as, as a surprise I come mean, out with it because uh, I don't want to give the guys out there in photoshop the the chance to be trying to fake this They couldn't fake it, but they they will uh, they will try if I describe this field and and we have it well documented I wouldn't even talk about it if we had one or two examples. We have thousands of daylight examples of this from motion picture films, and it is it's distinctive and let me say this when these objects when you have more than one. In the sky with you know, within even several miles of each other, something else starts happening. You get an interplay between the two fields. And uh, what by analogue I would describe I'm sure that all of you are familiar with heterodyne. Uh, for example you're tuning a musical instrument and you you have one that's perfectly tuned, the is not indeed. If they're not perfectly tuned, you get you hear a difference between the two, a warble that is the the frequency difference
2: between the two. Right.
3: Well these objects create an interaction between their fields that actually create geometric patterns in the sky around them. And uh, oh, harmonics. We have excellent, excellent examples of this happening. When you've got more than one UFO, you're going to have that happening. That's the way they interact. And if they don't, they're not uh, using the particular kind of propulsion that I'm talking about right now.
1: Yeah, it sounds like uh, sort of like harmonics.
3: About Like what?
1: I said it sounds sort of like harmonics.
3: Yeah, I, I suppose that you could call it that because uh, the interaction, I, you know, I don't know the nature of this interaction. At this point, we only know that the patterns are there and, you know, and they change with what the objects are doing. But we don't know what part of their... Energy field. We don't know if it's the magnetic uh, interaction, or if it's uh, what we call the, the, the quantum field effect. What seems to be, we are tenderly identifying as a quantum field effect, or whether it is a gravity-like effect. Speaking of uh, light bending and uh, and gravity-like effects, which we have some excellent documentation on. Let me mention another effect that uh, that we have some fine evidence of. Uh, UFOs have been described sometimes as being. Uh, uh, well, uh, let's say geometrically shaped. And often, even a circular object will suddenly appear like it's changed to a rhombic or a diamond shape, you know, or a square seen at an angle, turned an angle. And uh, what we have, uh, we have some very excellent evidence. For example, I have a picture taken in daylight from a helicopter. And uh, there is a disk between the helicopter and the ground below. There's a river down below. And uh, there's a the disk there. And the shadow of the disk is across the river and is onto the, the ground on either side of the river. And it's a real picture. You can even see that there, that there was a, a peaceful wind that day because the, the way the shadow and the light from sunlight interact by the wavelets the uh, starting uh, the shadow on the edges. And uh, the shadow of the object is diamond-shaped, but the object is disk-shaped. Which strongly suggests that persons looking at it from down below uh, would be seeing a a square or a rhombic uh, diamond shaped uh, object and uh but we have this uh in in many other uh, films in which objects it, it can even be there even if you're not seeing it your film can detect it uh, even when it's not a strong enough level to affect the, the, the visible shape of an object you get uh you get this thing happening and we have some wonderful examples. For example, in two simultaneous movie films on July, 28 59, we got the first two simultaneous, uh, and probably to this day only, uh, simultaneous movie films, uh, daylight, uh, of UFOs. These were these big objects with smaller objects going to and fro. And, uh, we had, uh, nine witnesses uh, in the, the Stanford front yard. And, uh, this, by the way, most of you have seen uh, what a part of the six uh, the 16 millimeter film, which was beautiful. Uh, it was the background for over 10 years, and the, with the lead-in and, and materials for the uh, the famous TV series, the Alan Mansberg TV series, "In Search of," with Leonard Nimoy as host. It, it was without permission, without asking permission, and without credit. It was used for over 10 years as the backdrop for that. And if anybody doubts it, I will show them uh, the original uh, film. By the way, these films, uh, when these films were taken in our front yard, I took both the films unprocessed and sent them to Max B. Miller, the well-known researcher in UFOs on the West Coast and, in the 1950s. And uh, he gave them to uh, Norman S. who to have them processed, and they looked at, and, and Norman made prints from the movie films before I ever saw them. And they looked at them, measured the angle size based on the, uh, determined the angle size based on the focal length of the lens, and so on. And uh, they did a rather thorough job. And so these were documented from the word go because I sent the unprocessed film for immediate processing and analysis by outside researchers.
1: The way I'm recording today, I have to actually stop for probably about three minutes to uh, put okay. another disc in. I'm going to play some okay. music. And then we'll come back and have about a half an hour. Is that okay? Sure. Okay. Great. Thanks. Okay. Here we're uh, we're here with uh, thanks, Ray. We're here with uh, Ray Stanford. He's um, probably one of the only people that has uh, been working on a scientific approach to UFOs, uh, the study of them since uh, since the beginning, almost most significantly with Project Starlight in the nineteen seventies. He also was, um, and we talked about on this this on the last show around right at the beginning with all the contactees. And uh, we talked about his opinions on them last time, but I'm going to ask him about one more of them when we come back from this music break here on Radio Mysterioso.
2: Okay. Is that
1: working? We're back on Radio Mysterioso here with uh, Mr. Ray Stanford. Last time we were on, um, we had you on as a guest. We talked about um, the part that got cut off was Project Starlight. We also talked about um, your paleontology work, which we can talk about. We've got to squeeze this into half an hour, though. But there was a topical thing I wanted to ask you about. I know you were in Texas during the 50s, and uh, what happened uh, a couple weeks ago, a a little over a week ago, Howard Menger passed away, and there were a few reminisces about him. I wrote something up about him. Do you have any, um, memories of Menger and what your opinion of him was? And you don't have to be nice and you don't have to be kind and you don't have to be, uh, no. nasty either. Exactly. Just what you thought of Mr. Menger.
3: Yeah. Well, Menger, uh, in the first place, when he started out, uh, the pictures he was showing were, he was, he was a Professionally, he was a sign painter at that time, right. and not a very good one, I know, because uh, <laughs> his pictures were patterned after the Adamski uh, lampshade model that he called a scout ship, the Polish lampshade with a porcelain surface, and uh, he was drawing these things and making the mistake that that Inept artists make very readily. He was uh, putting the plane of the uh, the greater diameter of the disc around the edge uh, out of way out of parallel with the with the the plane of, for example, the base of the dome where this so-called coil was. it called a coil. He had these completely misaligned, and you could see. The, the brush, story, I presume he might have been using one of these paints that you can illuminate with light, turn off the light, and, you know, it, it retains a glow, and yeah. just taking a time exposure. Is like Adamski was using. Certainly the pictures were not real. The moon pictures that he claimed to have gotten on the surface of the moon are ludicrous. They're, they're not only clearly tabletop photography of small models, but the, the atmospherics completely eliminate the possibility that these were on the moon at all. Uh, shadows are quite sharp. And the, the shadows are diffused just to the degree that I would expect them to be uh, in the, the terrestrial atmosphere and not in the lunar uh, relative vacuum of near-lunar of, of near lunar surface. And uh, I believe that uh, uh, he probably thought maybe that he was doing the world some good with this, this message. I think that he at least rationalized it this way. So I'm not saying that his intentions were entirely bad, but certainly the action of, of Faking it and making claims like this is is unfair to people, and uh, uh, it's it shows ability. I think that people that do that deceive first and foremost themselves, and uh, having deceived himself, he was willing to deceive the public. In my opinion, I don't believe that anything he produced that I've ever seen uh, was genuine in the way of uh, films of any kind. Um, I know many photographs and films have been taken that are genuine. But by the way, when we were talking earlier about this matter of these being secret government projects instead of alien visitation, uh, one has to suddenly, uh, in in positing such an idea that they are secret government devices, one has to suddenly endow the pilots with incredible psychic ability, which has never been uh, achieved at that level in the laboratory, not in not in uh, uh, how put off the research, not in subsequent research on remote viewing. Uh, there are incredible displays of this in so many UFO cases. People, um, they will think, a guy will think about getting his gun, and the thing just backs off just like that. Uh, We had the marvelous case that I think I described, Greg, maybe last time, uh, in which uh, after one of the meetings in the White Plaza Hotel in Carpus Christi, 14 of us decided to go out to Padre Island. We had a feeling we might see something. And uh, this was in early January, I forget the exact date, maybe the 5th, 1957. And there are 14 of us out there on the white sands of Padre Island, and... uh, a flight of at least conservatively 100, but probably more likely over 150 objects flying in formation. They, they glowed like, about the color of hot coals of fire. And uh, the marvelous formations. And they would come and, and make instantaneous 180-degree turns and uh, right-angle turns and incredible maneuvers. And then we got a weird impression that was almost impossible for us to believe. We got the impression that they were saying that these things are second bodies for their pilots and that there is a complete uh, psyche-mind interface between the occupants of these craft and their craft, as if they were their own bodies, as easy to control, as if you're telling your body to turn right. And they said, we're going to prove this to you. We're going to turn over control to you, Ray. And I told the group this. I said, they're claiming this is hard to believe. And I would... Send the message of what I want to do and they would do this. I mean, it, it is so bizarre that even weeks afterward, I mean, it's like I'm talking about something I saw in the Twilight Zone instead of something real, but all 14 of us saw this again and again. And then they said, well, uh, you know, let your brother have his cookie, so to speak. That wasn't the, the, the words, but, yeah. uh, and so he tried it and was able to do it. Now the weird thing was too, on top of this, uh, within two weeks, John McCoy, who had been there, Got a letter from a a person in California that that we knew that was involved in this, and he said, you know, and he had no, he had no idea this happened to us, and he said, you know, he said I had a crazy thing happen this past weekend out on the desert, on the high desert. He said that this group of objects flying. Now he didn't see you know 150 or so like like we did at a given time in formation, but he saw a small group of objects that were flying in formation, and he said they. He said, I, they sent me a telepathic message that I could control them, tell them what to do. And he said, I whatever I thought, they did. And we thought this was amazing coincidence to happen within a couple of weeks after we had this incredibly mind-boggling experience on Padre Island. But what I'm saying is, this is not terrestrial technology. Uh, we're working toward... Mind interface with uh, controlling craft, and we have some development on it, but it's very, uh, it requires physical accoutrements. These things uh, do not, I mean, there's no equipment that has to be attached on your head or anything like that, apparently. And and not uh, that we didn't have anything on our heads, and uh, (laughs) they were certainly maneuvering in response to us. And I could go over numerous ones of the experiences that the project had and our our crew, and uh, we would see this... uh, evidence of this psi interaction. And uh, I believe that, too, is a a clear-cut indication that we're dealing with uh, uh, non-terrestrial technology. I prefer the term non-terrestrial rather than extraterrestrial because, frankly, the the more exotic field effects we've regarded on these things you know, I don't know whether we're dealing... I don't know if these these so-called motherships, these big things, I don't know that they carry these things. They may be one terminal of a Stargate or something. And, you know, we don't know... We're beginning to understand the universe in a much larger way. So I'm not saying these are necessary extraterrestrials in the sense that they come from Planet X. I don't know where they come from. All I know is we're watching a wonderful and highly sophisticated technology and
1: recording it. Well, that kind of led into my next question, what, what you thought the ultimate source of whatever this phenomena is, where it might be coming from, if it's even something uh, physical, the source that we could trace, you know, the way our technology is now. I'm
3: confident uh, that that is the case. Uh, um, But uh, I believe that that they're coming from more than one source. Uh, There was that one time that I mentioned before that uh, uh, in 1954 when we were on top of my parents' uh, kind of flat roof garage and... Oh, God, and we had seen objects even clearer and and closer. But this one object, and I'll tell you something, it was like uh, Dr. Terror had appeared before us. I mean, we began to shake like leaves of a quaking aspen. And uh, there was something totally sinister and awful about this. And uh, also, there are, well, for example, in the photographs that we've been able to get in daylight. Uh, I'm looking right now on my wall at uh, at one, two, three kinds of occupants inside. Now, I'm not saying they're not traveling together. It's a bunch of uh, people around the, the bar in Star Wars, <laughs> things around the bar in Star Wars. But uh, uh, certainly none of these three are uh, really alike. And uh, uh, so I, I really think they come from various sources, and we can't name one thing and say... This is it. In fact, to tell you the truth, I think that uh, as far as the things that I, some of them, I believe have been around here from ages and have influenced our religions, and I believe that that we're never going to, in our lifetimes, put a finger on exactly what it is or how it operates. Because, as I say at the end of my whole presentation, I, I, I quote uh, a well-known British astronomer who uh, said, "The universe is not only stranger than." Uh, than we know, uh, uh, but it is stranger than we we can know or understand or something. I forget the exact quote, and uh, I feel that way about it. I think that when people try to put it down into you know here is an extraterrestrial craft, many of these people and these fake photographs that we see on YouTube, uh, they are basing this upon an idiotic 1950s idea of as I say a, spa- a plastic spacecraft, you know that came out of a dime store. They're not basing it on the advanced physics that a culture just my God a culture just fifty years ahead of us would you know it would be incredible to us even as you know imagine yourself back forty years ago having a a, a state of the art electronic instrument in your hand uh, you would probably be as, as I heard somebody say on TV yesterday you might be burned at the stake <laughs> so you know we, we really have to be conservative about any final. statement about where these are from or what they are. Uh, Some of them, I think, may be teaching us something. But others, I don't think they're interested in teaching us a thing. And there's some awfully bad things that that some of them have done. You heard me talk about the the, uh, uh, B-57 that was literally, apparently, swallowed up by one right off the Gulf uh, uh, of uh, Matagorda Island on the, on the coast of Texas. And uh, we saw the object uh, there uh, not too long after this happened in daylight, and we saw the jets timidly making recon runs on it and turning back. We could see them by their vapor trails, and it was, it was incredible. There are other terrible things down in Brazil that these things have done, and the Brazilian government pretty well documented a lot of these. I think Jack Vallée did a pretty good job of documenting some of these cases, as did yeah. most of all Bob uh, Pratt. And uh, oh, so yeah. we really you know, it's not all a bowl of, of pleasant soup, to say the least. I think we have a very mixed bag and it's at some ends in some places. It is absolutely awesome, and I. this is one reason I don't think the government can really talk to the public in any great depth, because of what they don't know of what they're afraid of, and what they do know. That is pretty scary, I think, in some areas.
2: The
1: other thing that we talked about when you were on is something nobody would ever expect you to be involved with, which is kind of a That's second right. or third career for you, which was amateur paleontology. That's and we've right. got about 15 That's... minutes left for you to describe that and how you found okay. some of these things near your home and how some of them are going to the Smithsonian right now. Well, you know
3: kids were growing up, uh, they're all adult now and uh and one grandchild. But when they were younger, uh we used to walk the, the uh the clear streams here in uh, Prince George's County, Maryland, looking for such Indian art- Indian artifacts that were, you know, washed out of uh, the the stream bed, uh the, the banks and so on. and uh we didn't find much of any great interest, uh a lot of of fruit tools but nothing to grow about. But uh you know, we came across a dinosaur track and uh I called the kids. Guess what it looked like? They all, three in one voice, said, There is the dinosaur track. I said, but we just read in the book the other day that no dinosaur tracks have ever been found in this part of Maryland. Uh, And uh, so we left it there. But not long after this, I came across another one uh, in uh, in another stream. And uh, I realized, ultimately, uh, what we were looking at and that these were tracks that were much... uh, Uh, later in time than the ones that were known about in the northwestern part of Maryland from what's called the New York Supergroup and that were uh, about 205 uh, million years old. turns out we were looking at that time at Iguanodon and and sauropod tracks, and we were looking at tracks that we found out were about 112 million years old, and there was much more speciation that late in time. And so I've been able to accumulate uh, tracks from, oh gosh, I would say at least probably 20, maybe 20-some-odd, species of dinosaur. We don't know what species from a track, but uh, we can, you know, tell generally that it's different completely from another type and, and so on. And I have a lot of small trackways, and even I found one uh, baby, uh, well, it, it, even a hatchling, a fossilized hatchling of a uh, an armored dinosaur, a star, which it turns out is a new uh, species and genus and over a New Taxon and uh, it will go on display last I heard uh, this summer at the National Museum of Natural History, Smithsonian and uh, downtown on the mall in the museum, of course, not on the mall literally, and uh, along with uh, a lot of my baby tracks and trackways, and I've also found the only tracks of, of pterosaurs, which most people may know as pterodactyls uh, that uh, have ever been found uh, east of the Mississippi River, and I have quite a number of them, and and uh, even have uh, part of the wing bone of of one of them. And uh, uh, I just found the biggest track of the the left front foot of one of these things that has ever been found anywhere in the world. It's about 15 inches long from digit 1 to digit 3. And uh, that means that in the early Cretaceous and not just in the late Cretaceous, there were some really huge... uh, things uh, i would only wish for a time machine to be able to see these things uh, however i wish to be safe when something has a wingspan of you know 40 maybe 45 feet uh Wingspan, I, I wouldn't want to be in a vulnerable position, but I would love to to see it. And uh, big big pterosaurs were known from the late Cretaceous, from, for example, in Texas, the bones of one that's been named Quetzalcoatlus northropi, appropriately, because he was so big they named him after Northrop, the uh, aircraft corporation back then.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. and, uh,
3: <laughs> but this guy was just as big or bigger than Quetzalcoatlus northropi, and he lived 112 million years ago instead of 65 million years ago.
1: Also, you have a collection of tracks. I, if you look at my first uh, post on uh, UFO Mystic, there's actually a picture taken by uh, Associated Press photographer of you actually sitting in your house with hundreds of these dinosaur tracks, which I think you found exactly. near your home.
3: That's right. It, it, uh, uh, yes, there, there are probably about two and a half tons of dinosaur tracks and trackways right in our, our living room museum.
1: Uh, how did uh, the Smithsonian find out about this? how did um... I told him
3: about it uh, well oh. the uh, uh it, it became well known you know I, I present scientific papers at conferences and uh you know it became well known and uh, uh so i um uh, invited the curator of dinosaurs uh, uh matthew carano uh, over uh, well actually they knew about it long before that but what what he became curator i invited him over and uh he he was just really thrilled with what he saw and, and strongly encouraged me to you know to get involved with them and, and let there be put up a, a display of this stuff, which is, is going to happen. Last time I talked to Matt, it was uh, uh, going to be sometime this summer. I've got to touch base with him here because we have got to, We would like the, the paper on the new uh, genus and species of dinosaur to to come out coinciding with the the public display of it. So we're going to have to get the, the huffing on that if it's coming as soon as this summer sometime. I hope it's toward the latter part of the summer, if that's the case. So we can go ahead and, and get it in print by that
1: time. If people want to find out about that, uh, can they just type in your name to a search engine? Or because I found out uh, about a little bit just by doing that.
3: It, uh, I would say, Ray Stanford Dinosaurs, our dinosaur tracks, oh, okay. uh, and and uh, they're more likely to find it there.
1: Are you through with uh, anomalies type research, UFO stuff? Or are you going to take it up again? Oh, no. or are you still, still involved? Uh,
3: heavily involved in it uh, right now, making making discoveries day by day. I, I haven't. Uh, uh, I haven't gotten any really good pictures of, of UFOs since uh, I've gotten some, but nothing really super. Uh, I did get something very nice and beautiful uh, back on December 1st, 2007, when I was actually going out to uh, to hunt for dinosaur tracks, and uh, uh, I pulled into a parking lot uh, and uh, to to walk through the parking lot and go downhill to this stream where I found some interesting stuff, and uh, here was. Uh, uh, what we call the mothership, or what I may Michelle back in the fifties would have called the Great Cloud cigar, The beautiful white uh, object, and another uh, such white object, the same size, was approaching it, and uh, I got pictures of the one approaching, and then right under it, and it it came up and docked with it. They joined together, and I was able to see several off to the right side of it. I was able to see several uh, much smaller objects that looked, you know, just to the eye, kind of dark bluish uh, black. And uh, but they also came out the pictures. I got three pictures, and uh, the first two I, I was a- out looking for dinosaur tracks and I was going to photograph with my wife's little digital camera. I didn't have my good equipment with me, but uh, and so stupidly the first two photographs I, I I didn't I thought it was on telephoto and wasn't. So I got out of the parking lot and it was focusing in on the car, so it wasn't as good, a little overexposed. But uh, I had worked them on the computer and brought them up. Uh, to where they're more properly exposed and 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 uh, a little sharper, and then the wonderful little, the last photograph though was just spectacular, uh, and this thing is is moving sideways. It's this. It looks like it's it's vertical, but it's moving, uh, it's moving uh, sideways, and uh, these objects were maneuvering around it again, like like hummingbirds, but there's I got. Quite a number of the objects that you can see around it, and it's it's my wife. Uh, even though I have much better pictures from the scientific standpoint, from the details of the craft, by uh, much better. But this is even my wife's uh, favorite shot because it, it, it's an incredibly beautiful sky, the cloud patterns, and and the the scene, and this this pure white double mothership, two docked, and, and of course with the, the the sequence showing docking, and and the objects around it, and uh, I. I have. I don't know how many we have gotten of these large objects, but uh, this is a very important thing in uh, in uh, pointing toward a non-terrestrial origin for these things. Is the huge carriers, which would not be necessary in in uh, the context of, of terrestrial craft uh, at all, and with, when you see these, and, and we have replication, we have photographed the same objects on numbers of occasions, on movie film, on at uh, at 10 power, on uh, at 20 power, with uh, you know, on 35-millimeter film. And the exact same objects talking with these things, the exact same attendant phenomena, some of which I've described and some of which I've not described, are present in all these cases. One of these was, uh, as we were going to visit a colonel, an Air Force colonel, at uh, Andrews Air Force Base right here on the you uh, say, just outside the Beltway of Washington, D.C., uh, on uh, Sunday, the 16th of February, 1985. And uh, we saw two of these big, uh, for lack of better terminology, mothership carry, whatever you want to, stargaze, whatever you want to think of them as. And before I could get my camera out and ready to shoot, one of them just found them right before their eyes. The other one remained, with objects going to and fro. And I got a good movie of it. And I got a movie of, uh, my wife began to say, Ray, Go back from go back from telephoto, get wider angle. There's there's a jet. I see a jet trail coming toward it. It's like it's making a reconnaissance run. And sure enough, I, I got film and, and this, this this trail comes closer and I mean it's you know, we, we know by the way the distance we know where this thing well, actually this this little mothership was hovering approximately over Quantico. I won't go into know how we determined that, but I won't go to describe it. But here comes this trail and when it gets within, you know, a certain distance from the The carrier the thing just goes, and in a, a few frames that uh, i think it was i was probably using twenty four frames a second at that point uh within i think- p- three frames it phantoms and immediately phantoms back in about what we believe was about five miles to the uh, to the uh west northwest of where it had been and leaving the jet uh, going toward nothing and that's right on the film, the whole transition the whole it going and and reappearing just in a fraction of a second, and then one of the objects uh, came away from it and started heading toward us. And we got some darn good pictures of that thing, and uh, a movie. And uh, the strange thing was that um, when it got, it, it got within, oh, a thousand feet of us, this thing had been miles away, and when it got within a thousand feet or so of us, we blacked out. My film was continued, and I said film huh. right through the end. But when we woke up, I mean, when we became aware of our surroundings, uh, the camera was sitting beside me. We had no missing time. We were on time for our dinner appointment with the Colonel and his wife (laughs) and the kids uh, at the the Air Force Base. But um, anyway, we had a wonderful film. And here's the fascinating thing I'll tell you that I've not told publicly before. But when we take the image of the so-called mothership, which this makes me wonder if it's not a Stargate of some sort. You know, it has an incredible glow to it. Well, when you take it and, and bring down the brightness and and look at the patterns, it doesn't look like what I think is something that's carrying craft. I think it can carry them locally, but it has patterns in it that looks like it is generating concentric energy fields and is, uh, it may just be a Stargate. It may just be a teleportation center. I mean, that's speculation too, but... It's awfully bizarre, and we've got this again and again in, in these pictures. Not only from there, but the ones from back in Texas in uh, October fifteenth, eighty four. Now this was, as I said, February sixteen, eighty five. Uh, I'm sorry, eighty at, at, uh, six, at Andrews Air Force Base. But any, anyway, uh, when you look, as I call it, looking inside that type of carrier, which is the fourteen hundred foot one, it it is just. I mean, when we saw this, well, I have a colleague that works with me on this in Texas, and and we both just, it opened up a whole awareness to us that these things might not be just local ships that can carry things that dock with them, but they may be things that can send things to another terminal somewhere else. It doesn't prove it, but when you look at what's on there, when you, when you do get to see it, Greg, I think you'll realize that it might not be speculation that's too far out to, to suggest that.
1: I would love to see that. You have invited me before. I will be in Florida in November. There might be, yeah, and maybe in Virginia. There might be a way for um, my wife and I to stop by, and I I think that would be great. I'd love to see all the stuff Uh, you've been telling us out. I hope you will.
3: We'd love to to share it with you.
1: Great. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to add before we uh, sign off here? And I'll I'll put the show up within probably a few days here.
3: Well, uh, as far as the paleontological work, uh, I have looked the streams of Maryland over where these things, outcroppings are so much that uh, there's the finds are are not very often anymore. They were abundant when I started off. Nobody ever discovered these things, but uh, this leaves me more time, of course, to to work on the UFO thing as such. And right now, except for that, my computer broke down today, and I have to replace some equipment. Uh, it uh, I, I'm I'm spending from. Uh, 12 to 18 hours a day on this almost every day of the week. Ah, that's great. Uh, working with these films and getting it ready to present uh, to to certain uh, physicists and aerospace engineers. A lot of it's been presented before, but uh, getting it more ready with a lot more material, a lot more diagnostic material. And we have – I didn't mention, but I'll close by saying we also have beautiful daylight film uh, I, uh, from a procession of seven or eight objects, uh, seven of which were identical – um, six or seven, uh, I filmed four before I ran out of film. We've got these disks with a dome with emitters around the flange with beautiful colors in daylight that projects a beam ahead in the direction of travel, uh, not off the flange, directly ahead on the axis of radial symmetry, and it moves with the, the what we would think of the flat bottom of the disk in the direction of travel, horizontal, and then turns, and they go almost straight up doing this and you can actually see this and you can see the details of how the plasma is being controlled by this beam and uh, as i said there was this whole procession of them came over the carpus christi bay on a beautiful october day a lot of people out there and i and i know one case where a, a young man uh, took photographs of them in in town we were right on, on a pier there with uh, quite a number of people that saw when I, when I filmed this, but that is a very important it is extremely propulsive diagnostic and has been extremely meaningful to aerospace engineers as well as uh, of course physicists who deal in plasma
1: well if you don 't mind uh, when you get that stuff out we 'd like to we can have you back on talk about the reaction, and also uh, of course, when I get to see this stuff for myself, then we can talk about it in depth and uh, let the listeners. Um, hear it from somebody else who's seen it besides the ori- the originator. Right. have, you know, two okay. points of view. Right.
3: That would be good. And I, I do look forward to be sure and, and, and plan ahead that, that you can uh, have some time to, to spend with us here, and we'll, we'll certainly give you a show.
1: That's, that's really cool of you, Ray. Thanks so much for being on the show again and repeating the stuff that you said before patiently. Um, I'll get this show up, and then we can have the entire Ray Stanford story here in two segments. Thanks for being with us, Ray, and uh, my, I'll let you go lawyer. to sleep now. <laughs> and I'll talk to you soon. All right, all right, Ray Stanford. Okay, so it'll be Walter and and maybe a and maybe a wacky guest. See who else I can piss off. <laughs> it's just you know it's a difference of opinion, Walter. It's just, and sometimes it works and sometimes yeah. it doesn't. Here's a you know what I found. Somebody posted the end credits music to Buckaroo Banzai.
4: Remember that movie? What was the... M- oh, yeah, I remember the movie because I... Peter Weller? I, I got to watch DreamQuest do some of the visual effects one day because I knew those guys. Oh, okay. And uh, But what was the closing music?
1: It was this. Oh, you know what? This is actually plays over something that says that there's going to be another Buckaroo Bonsai movie, which there never was. Here's the end credit Buckaroo Bonsai music. Yes, remember I remember. This? Yeah. <laughs> I really liked this movie when it came out. Anyway, thanks for listening. It's been Radio Mysterioso. Thanks again to Ray Stanford so much for staying up late there on the East Coast and talking to us. And we'll be back next week with Walter and I, and possibly a guest. And if not, an interesting show as usual, as I know, by the download load that we get off of the Radio Mysterioso site, where you can get most of these shows and um, some old ones. We're having problems with the server. We're going to get them fixed this week, probably, and... Um, Get more shows up. Thanks again, uh, stay tuned for, um, Beneath the Underdog, and, uh, Red Mysterio, so, and, and, and I should have more coffee. Good night.